Now, when I think ambition and success, I think motivational sayings. Because most motivational sayings are about ambition, whether the word is in the saying or not. The motivational sayings that filter across your Facebook feeds, the one my gym instructor chooses to start each class with. Now, there are the aggressive go-getting ones. Second place is just first loser. A young person without ambition is an old person waiting to die. <laughs> Not one day, day one, people. Then there are the slightly kinder ones that encourage perseverance. Just keep swimming. Ambition is the key to success. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Then there are the kind of think positively about yourself ones. Limits only exist in the mind. Dreams can come true if you have the courage to pursue them. Be the unicorn in a field of horses. <laughs> then there are the cynical ones, right, that speak of the curse of ambition. When ambition ends, happiness can begin. Ambition destroys its possessor. Discontent follows ambition like a shadow. And then, of course, there's a Christian take on all of these. Flashback to the inspirational posters of my youth. All things are possible with God. Be strong and courageous, for God is with you wherever you go. We find that in Joshua. And the classic from Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, for the record, I'm not cynical about the word of God and memory verses, but I do question, I'm a little cynical about how we use them sometimes because I don't think these verses can be used to argue that God will satisfy every ambition we happen to have. Not all of our ambitions are consistent with what God is doing in us and through us in the world. The Oxford English Dictionary defines ambition as a strong desire to do or achieve something. Ambitions motivate us. Ambitions for ourselves, our family, our community. Ambitions for happiness, relationships, work, ministry, health, security, survival. And some ambitions are big and some are finite. Some we can articulate. We know exactly what they are and we are consciously working towards them. Others sit, I think, deep within our heart and surprise us when we find them. Some ambitions we will achieve and others we won't. Uh, what you're ambitious for will set your trajectory for life because your energies, resources, emotions, they'll be directed towards it. It affects how you feel, what you worry about or don't, how you measure success or failure, what you take joy in or don't. Now, I don't think ambition in and of itself, it's neither a good nor a bad thing. I think we probably need it to get up in the morning. What matters is what you are ambitious for, what you are ambitious to be, what you are ambitious to see happen. And ambition could be godly or ungodly, worthwhile or worthless, selfish or selfless. Today we're talking about godly ambitions. Uh, we're using Philippians 3 because I think it's a chapter of ambitions. The word isn't there, but the idea, the passion is. And it's not the only thing the Bible says about ambition, but it's useful. Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul, and in chapter 3, he tells us what his ambitions are for himself. 
and for others, for his life now and his life in the future. And he starts by telling us how his ambitions changed when he became a Christian. They changed because he realised that the things he was previously ambitious for, the things he valued, the success he craved, were in the long run relatively worthless when compared to knowing Christ. The Paul we meet pre-conversion, the pre-Jesus Paul, was a man ambitious to establish his own righteousness before God. That was his definition of a success, I think until he realised it was a waste of time. Let me read Philippians 3, verses 2 to 6. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul starts by talking about his past because he's worried that the Christians, that the Philippians, the Christian Philippians appear to be, they, they appear to be influenced or risk being influenced by false teaching. They appear to be listening to people who say that Christians should follow certain Jewish practices to be really Christian. To be really Christian, to really please God, you need Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision, for example. Now, circumcision was given to the Israelites, the Old Testament people of God, as a sign that they were God's people. But when Jesus came and the distinction between Jew and Gentile disappeared, so did the call for circumcision. The old markers of Jewish identity, like circumcision, were a thing of the past. It, it wasn't circumcision that marked out the people of God, not anymore. The people of God are those who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. They're those who serve God by his spirit, not their own hard work and effort. It's God's spirit who enables us to do any work we do. The people of God who are those who boast in Christ Jesus, his work, his effort, his success, not their own. It's his righteousness that saves us, not our own. So Christians are people who put no confidence in the flesh at all. Our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves. And any approach to God, any attempt to establish your own righteousness through your own efforts is worthless. Because if you depend on yourself, you're not depending on Christ. Any boasting in who you are, what you've done, the successes you have achieved, take away from boasting in Christ because you're boasting in yourself. You can't depend on both him and you. It is him or you. You can't boast in both him and you. It is him or you. So don't listen to anyone who says plus to be saved, whether the voice comes from out there in the world or in your mind. Jesus plus circumcision. Probably not a huge issue for women, but you men really do go when you talk about circumcision. It's hysterical. Anyway, um, Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus whatever. When it comes to being right with God, these pluses are worthless. 
So don't take pride in them. Don't be ambitious for them because you can't depend on both him and you. It's him or you. You can't boast in both him and you. It's him or you. And Paul knows that through experience, personal experience. It's the word of God that tells him that, but his personal experience backs it up. The religion that these, I mean, the language he uses is robust, right? The religion that these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, his language, not mine, is robust, which tells you of the dangers of that approach. He doesn't take this lightly. The religion they offer is a religion based on pedigree and performance. It's a religion that's about establishing your own righteousness, succeeding through your own efforts, which means boasting in yourself. And it's probably worth noting that when Paul says these things won't get you right with God or stay right with God, it's not because he failed at them. You know, that's my tendency, right? Give up ambitions for things I can't achieve. That's the road to disappointment. I love watching cricket, but it became very clear to me very early in year 11 cricket I was never going to hit the Australian team. Let's give up ambitions for that. But Paul says when he says it won't help you get right with God, stay right with God, it's not because he failed at them. Paul says these things are worthless even when he excelled at them. I mean, Paul's Jewish pedigree and performance were A grade. He tells us, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he tells us his natural advantages, if you like, the advantages God had given him. The real advantages in a Jewish world, advantages God had given him. He was Jewish, one of God's chosen people. He wasn't just an Israelite, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a noble tribe, one of only two that stayed true to God when most of them left. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. There was none of that merging in with the surrounding Greco-Roman culture for Paul, as though he was embarrassed to be Jewish. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He kept his cultural and religious identity. So he had all the advantages of heritage, ethnicity, upbringing, all working for him. And he wasn't lazy, he didn't rest on his laurels, he hadn't wasted those advantages God had blessed him with, his performance was exemplary. Paul was no liberal Jew, he was a Pharisee. He studied the law, he knew the law, he kept the law. Big tick against all of them on the list. He defended the faith against those who went soft. He persecuted those Christians. Makes sense from his perspective, didn't it? They're soft, they've left the faith. Was Paul righteous according to the law? Absolutely. He was faultless. Can you see what Paul is saying? When it comes to valuing and using the natural advantages God gave him, it didn't get better than him. Best family, best school, best job. And he didn't take any of them for granted. He worked hard, worked with integrity. He had it all. Reputation, success, family background, personal sense of achievement, I would imagine. He was ambitious to establish his own righteousness and he thought he succeeded. That's what he put his confidence in, confidence in his flesh, confidence in himself and his efforts to make him right with God. But my suspicion is, right, it's never just about making yourself right with God, is it? It's almost always about making yourself right with yourself, feeling strong, that sense of self-satisfaction, self let's get it out there. That sense of self-satisfaction and achievement, hard-won success, deserved success, it's almost never just about making yourself right with God. It's, it's always about making yourself right before others, isn't it? As they admire you. 
or you can look down on them. Verse 4 starts with, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. See, I think Paul knows it's not just what he did, it's what we do. People are tempted to depend on themselves rather than Christ, to boast in themselves rather than Christ, to put their confidence in the flesh. Not just to make them right with God, but also to make them right with themselves and right with others. So I wonder, how would you rewrite verses 4 to 6 for yourself? And Paul gives you his story. And he writes about his Jewish pedigree and performance because that's what he boasted in, that's what he depended on to make him right with God, with himself, with, he, with others. How would you rewrite verses 4 to 6 for yourself, I wonder? Because he now considers all of these things a loss, a waste of time. He says it's not just these things that are a loss. In verse 8 he says everything is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What is it for you? What makes you right with God, with yourself, with others that you depend on, boast in? I could write it for myself, right? I'll give you only fair to do it for you so you get a picture. Um, how would I write it for myself? This is four to six, I wonder. I could write it from a ministry angle, right? Helen Bell, Bachelor of Theology, honours, Masters of Arts in Theology. I enjoy dispensing words of Christian wisdom to people like you. Professional Christian, this is my job. And I have 18 years of successful fundraising behind me, so clearly other people agree. <laughs> Conversions each year. I had a bloke a couple of weeks ago become a Christian. He said it was because of something I said. <laughs> ministry apprentices. Now in ministry, I see photos of the Vinicums, and I think I helped in that process. <laughs> I am now going to add speaker at Bundy Women's Conference. <laughs> How would you write it for yourself? I mean, I can give you another version of it, right? There's versions, lots of versions. From a secular work angle, before I upgraded to ministry, I worked in an ordinary job. You see what I did there? That's loaded language, isn't it? Helen Bell, first in her family to go to uni. Winner of the third year Melbourne Prize for macroeconomics, I topped third year macro. Seemed big at the time. <laughs> That's the nature of these kind of boastings, though, doesn't, isn't it, actually? Seems big at the time. 30 years later, appears a little p pathetic. Anyway, one of only 23 people in the country to be accepted as an economist at the Federal Treasury, and I worked hard for that. People mock public servants, but I've done all-nighters all in the lead-up to the budget. I'm seeing mocking as I look out here. <laughs> Doesn't that sound little in some ways, what I've just said? And yet somehow, I wouldn't have described myself as particularly ambitious at work, but when I left Treasury to go into ministry, I discovered how valuable it was to me when I found myself saying, oh yes, I work in ministry, but I used to do this really important thing. Now, did you notice that all the things I listed as boasting in and working hard at, none of them are bad things to do. They're actually kind of good things to do. 
Nothing wrong with doing well at uni or getting a good job. Nothing wrong with wanting that. Nothing wrong with working hard to achieve that ambition. But none of them make me right with God and none of them establish my righteousness. Christ did that. And if I serve by God's spirit using the resources he's given me, not a lot of credit I can take for the outcomes. With the health God's given me, with the energy, not a lot of credit I can take from the outcomes. They may well be good things to do, but none of them should give me confidence that I'm right with myself. They are useless for that purpose. None of them should be things I boast in. And they probably shouldn't be my benchmark for whether I feel right with myself or to make me right with you somehow. If I'm ambitious for those things because I think they validate me, make me important, make me more valuable, somehow justify me before God and others, parents, friends, possibly to myself, they are worthless for that end. How would you write it for yourself? See, I think you could write it from a relationship angle, couldn't you? If that's your thing. Helen Bell, loyal friend, wife of 15 years and my husband and I still like each other. You could write this from a relationship angle, couldn't you? Or from a personality angle. Helen Bell, able to talk to almost anyone and everyone, defeated shyness at age 14. <laughs> Those aspects of your personality that are key to who you are. I could write it from a financial security angle. Housing deposit, retirement plan, successful budgeting, or a physical health angle. If you're a parent, I reckon you could write one of these based on your hopes and dreams for your children. My friends who are parents tell me that's how they work out what their ambitions are, the things they deeply desire for their own children and the order they place them in. Maybe you could write one for your kids. And I think your story could look like a proud one if you are a success story like Paul. I also think you could write one of these from an angle of failure from the perspective of what you are hoping for rather than what you have already achieved, from the perspective of how you would like your life to look, not how it does, and rather than a tone of pride, maybe that leaves you with a tone of despair as you tell your story because you've failed to achieve those ambitions. It's not about evaluating success but seeing and feeling your failure. Rather than a tone of pride, maybe you write it with a tone of anxiety because you're fearful that you will never get there. There's all sorts of ways you could write this, I think. But here's the thing. Succeed or fail, confident or anxious. Pursuing this type of righteousness, trying to establish your own righteousness, succeed on your own terms by your own effort, boast in yourself and your achievements or striving to be able to do that because you're not there yet. Ambition for this kind of success ultimately risks taking you away from Christ because it prevents you boasting in Christ and his achievements on your behalf. I've reworded the heading here because I decided it was a bit assertive in my first draft. This type of success risks taking you away from Christ. From verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of Christ, basis of faith. Seeking to establish your own righteousness will take you away from Christ's righteousness. It must. Seeking to succeed by yourself will stop you depending on Christ. It must. Boasting in yourself will stop you trusting in Christ. It must. I want you to notice the structure of these verses. I want you to notice the structure of these verses. Is that the right one up there? Yeah. The repetition of I consider. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the... Meeting Christ led Paul to a radical re-evaluation of the things he oriented his life around. His profit and loss language warms my cold economist's heart. His family, his religious heritage... Compared to knowing Christ, worthless. His hard work, his rule-keeping, compared to knowing Christ, garbage. They can't make you righteous, but Christ can. So if he has to choose between them, he chooses Christ. Don't put your confidence in these things. Don't build your identity around them. Your sense of who you are and whether God is pleased with you, your sense of being a success or failure. Don't build your sense of being right with God, right with yourself and your world, right with each other. They can't make you right with God, but Christ can. And so compared with knowing Christ, they're garbage. I really wanted to say crap, but I'm not allowed to say that in polite company. But it's that. It's robust. The first man I ever fell in love with wasn't a Christian. I was 27. I worked with him. It wasn't that I deliberately went out of my way to fall in love with him. He just there every day, work it. And then one lunch leads to another. I don't fall in love at the drop of a hat. didn't happen to me until I was 27. But compared to knowing Christ, worthless. Choose knowing Christ. A career in economics that I loved... Compared to knowing Christ, worthless. If I have to choose, choose knowing Christ. Popularity. Well, that seems if popular, a good reputation. There's the upmarket version of popularity, right? A good reputation. I mean, who wants to be known as the fundamentalist Christian? Next to knowing Christ, worthless. Choose knowing Christ. Financial security, next to knowing Christ, worthless. So if you have to choose, choose knowing Christ. I asked Rachel Smith once to give her testimony at La Trobe many years ago. She said that while she wanted to be healthy, and while health is a great gift of God, if she had to choose between good health and knowing Jesus, she chose Jesus. So I asked her to give her testimony. Notice what I haven't said. I haven't said it's wrong to want a certain job, to desire a particular relationship, to work hard and value success, to want good, healthy and happy family life. I have not said that's wrong. I have said that achieving these things does not make you more righteous before God. And I have said that if you have to choose between them and Christ, choose knowing Christ. 
Be ambitious to know Christ above any other ambition. Value him, knowing him above anything and everyone else because he is more valuable. Don't be ambitious for successes at the expense of knowing Christ. Don't make these things your primary ambition and then fit Christ in around them. Make knowing Christ your primary ambition and then the other things will fit around him. But it's often not about choosing between them and knowing Christ, is it? It's how to make decisions about these things while prioritising knowing Christ. It's a bit more subtle in the day-to-day experience. We'll be talking a bit about that more in the next talk and I think in your electives this afternoon. But I am saying that unless you are clear on their relative values, you will find it very difficult to make good decisions. Be ambitious to know Christ Jesus, your Lord. Paul was. Whatever against me. Oh, look at all the language, right? Back to the original. Back, we've looked at this before, right? But look how personal the language is. I, me, my. Look at how many times Christ comes up. This is all about Paul knowing Christ. Paul is ambitious to know Christ because Christ is worth knowing. He's ambitious to know Christ, to be with Christ, to be like Christ, now and into the future. His ambition is for a relationship with Christ. Now, I find that interesting, right? Because I would say Paul knows Christ. He knows Christ, but he wants to know Christ because good relationships grow. (laughs) They're not static. When you meet someone worth knowing, the more you know them, the more you want to know them. When you meet someone worth knowing, the more you know them, the more you will give up to get to know them better. When I first started dating Andrew, that would be my husband, um, one dinner, one phone call a week, right? That's where we sat at about six months. One dinner, one phone call a week, that's it because that's all I had time for. And to give him that much time, frankly, was a big deal in itself. Usually when when I went on dates with men, I got two-thirds of the way through the evening and thought, hmm, you're nice, but we don't need to do this again. (laughs) None of them are here. No, it was... It was different with Andrew. I got two-thirds of the way through the evening. I thought, mm, this is novel. I could do this again. <laughs> and as we got to know each other, I found myself willing to give up other things to spend more time with him because I enjoyed his company. He was worth the time. He was worth my energy. <laughs> I wanted to get him know him be- getting to know him better. Uh, Paul thinks Christ is worth knowing. He knows Christ and he wants to know Christ better. He doesn't just want to know about Christ, although knowing about Christ leads you to want to know Christ. He wants to know Christ personally, to know Christ, to enjoy Christ. He wants himself and his life to be shaped by Christ because it's worth it. His ambitions are no longer about himself, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. They're about knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what he will do in the world and in Paul. Paul wants to know Christ, which looks like, firstly, knowing Christ's righteousness as his own. He wants to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the heart of the Christian message. 
When Paul met Christ, he discovered that his own attempts at righteousness were a failure. Righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ. It doesn't come from our own efforts at obedience, at doing good works. Righteousness is not earned, it's given. It's given, not pursued. Christ and his righteousness do not become ours by effort or hard work, but through a rejection of effort and hard work. To be right with God, you need to recognise that you can't be right by your own efforts. Jesus, who is God himself, lived the life we could not live. He was righteous in his words and in his deeds, in his heart and his mind and emotions. In all his relationships with God himself, others, he was righteous. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. So on the cross, a swap happened. He took on himself our sin and he shared with us his righteousness. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. Our death becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours. Here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In one sense, right, God never sees Helen anymore. You have never seen Helen anymore because I am Helen in Christ. I'm found in him. Living together, united, always connected. God's future verdict on my life has been pronounced and it's the only verdict that matters. In a world where insecurity and status anxiety plague us, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Am I in or out? I can tell you with absolute confidence that God sees me perfect in his sight. And if you knew me, and some of you have known me for a long time, you know that's a big deal. Because Helen, because I am in Christ, and so God says, you are acceptable. I am for you. I am on your side. You are good with me. So be ambitious to know Christ's righteousness as your own because here's the weird thing, right? It takes effort to know Christ's righteousness as your own because we keep slipping away from it, slipping back to depending on our own efforts and boasting in ourselves because that's what the world tells us to do and that's what sin tells us to do and that's what the evil one tells us to do, to be, pr <laughs> to be proud because we're successful or find ourselves devastated because we're a failure. So be ambitious to know Christ's righteousness as your own, because that actually takes effort to stay there. But when you do, gone the guilt of past failures, of asking, will God forgive me? Gone the exhaustion of law-keeping, of asking, have I done enough? Gone the self-comparisons, with him or her, with your siblings or your parents or your friends, with those people down at the school gate. Gone, those self-comparisons. Gone the fear of turning up to that school reunion. Gone the desire to show up and just show them how much of a success of your life you've made. Gone the striving to reach your full potential. I mean, what is that? What is my full potential and how would I know whether I got there? It's just oppressive. Except that they're not always gone, are they? So be ambitious to know Christ's righteousness of your own because that takes effort. 
It's an ongoing process, not something you do once. Be ambitious to know Christ's righteousness of your own, to hold on to it when you feel yourself slipping away from it and not to let anyone take it from you. Be ambitious to know Christ's righteousness as your own and be ambitious to know the power of his resurrection. Paul writes in verse 10, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. First thing I want you to notice about this verse is the order. Christ's resurrection then Christ's suffering, then his death, then our resurrection from the dead. When I talk of Jesus, I talk about his death and resurrection. That's the order of Easter, the order of history. Christ died and then was raised. But that's not the order in which we meet Jesus personally. We meet the risen Lord in all his power. We meet the living Lord when we trust Jesus, not the dead one. For us, resurrection first, Paul's still writing about his experience of Christ. So I'm giving you stories about my experience. We need to tell stories about the truth of the scriptures in our experience. But knowing the power of his, this risen Lord leads us into unexpected places. We know the power of his resurrection as we participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. The Jesus we know is the Jesus who lived for others. We heard from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Where does the resurrection power of Christ lead a Christian? Self-sacrificial love. It leads us to valuing others above ourselves, just like Christ did for us and for others, putting their interests ahead of their own, just like Christ did for us and for others. When you know someone well, when you spend enough time with them, when you love them, you do start being shaped by them, don't you? It almost happens instinctively, naturally. We laugh when old married couples finish off each other's sentences, but it's also kind of nice. You start to see the world through that person's eyes because you listen to them. You start to see life through their eyes. As you listen to the passion for the things they love, listen to them explain why they do what they do, which they always try to persuade you to join them because it's so good they want you with them. My husband loved cats. I don't. Two came with him when we got married. Both are now dead. <laughs> Just saying. When we married... I would say that the cats and I established a good working relationship. <laughs> not a lot of affection. A commitment not to kill them. <laughs> but see, here's the weird thing, right? After enough time, I started to see them as my husband did. Affection grew. Love's still not there yet, and the cats are gone. What can I do? Um, 
have someone, you do start to see the world through their eyes, the things they love through their eyes. It's more so with us becoming like Jesus when we actually deliberately choose to conform our lives to him, deliberately try to see the world through his eyes, love the people he loves. Obey him because he's Lord. Trust him because he's good. Where does knowing Christ, as we know Christ, we will start to live for him and we will start to live like him. We will choose to live like him. Where does knowing Christ, knowing the power of the resurrection life, lead? It leads to the type of life Christ lived. And his was one of self-sacrificial love, a life of humbling himself for others, which will involve suffering in a sinful and broken world. Jesus humbled himself in a sinful world. The saviour who humbled himself became the saviour who was humiliated. Not because he was weak, not because he deserved it, but in love to save us. This health, wealth, prosperity message you hear from some churches and Christians, it's just not true. There are other ambitions coming into play there. As I read this passage this week, I was struck by the phrase participation in his sufferings, which I think points not just to our suffering, but our suffering with Jesus. This reminder that Jesus is with us. He's not a dead saviour, but a living one who continues his work through us. And his saving work involved his own suffering, and our participation in his work offering salvation to a dying world will involve our suffering. We're naive if we think otherwise. Christ suffered for us on the cross and he suffers with us when we live cross-shaped lives. Because as Christians we are inseparable from him and him from us. Which matters when you suffer because suffering can be isolating. It's like your world contracts to you and survival. And no one else can understand. How could they? So it matters that we know that we are inseparable from him and him from us. It matters that we know his power, the power of his resurrection life to enable us to live the life that leads to death. Paul wants to know Christ not just intellectually but experientially, suffering with and for Christ. Suffering with and for Christ will help him actually get to know Christ better. He'll better understand Christ's heart through shared experience. We do this as we learn to love the people Christ loved and died for. He'll start to understand what it costs Jesus to suffer for us, for him, as he chooses to suffer for others, start to understand the extent of Christ's love. And it'll force him to lean again on Christ's strength and experience Christ's care again, yet another experience of Christ's goodness. Now, I don't think Paul is ambitious to suffer, but he is ambitious to know Christ, and to know Christ will involve suffering. And through suffering, he will know Christ. Paul's ambitions are no longer about him, who Paul is, what Paul has done, what Paul will do. They are about knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus will do, what Jesus has done in Paul and what he will do in Paul and through Paul as Paul lives in the power of Jesus' resurrection and participates in Jesus' suffering and becomes like Jesus in offering up his life for others.
Okay, but that's not where it ends. Verse 10 is bookended by the resurrection. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him into death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's bookended by resurrection. Paul meets the risen Lord and looks forward to his own resurrection from the dead. Philippians 2 speaks of Christ's self-sacrificial sufferings, but it also speaks of his return in glory. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now when Paul writes about somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, I don't think he's wondering about whether he will be raised. Those who trust Jesus have eternal life, no questions asked. More about that in our next talk. So I don't think he's reflecting some uncertainty about his future resurrection. I think it's exactly what will happen in that resurrection and what will happen on the journey towards that resurrection. That's what he's uncertain about. There's some ambiguity there. What's the road that leads to that? The resurrection is certain, but what happens before it, less so. The resurrection is certain, but exactly how it happens, less so. We'll leave our thoughts there for a moment. Let me wind up. This passage started with Paul calling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. The things Paul has said about knowing Christ are meant to spark joy. Joy, as you know, freedom from ambitions that can never ultimately deliver what they promise. Joy, as you know, the Christ who loves you and died for you and shares his righteous life with you. Paul writes in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. I find this remarkable, this passage. He is sitting in prison and he's good with that. It can't have been his plans for evangelism and productive gospel ministry. Get yourself thrown into prison. That's the best way to advance the gospel. That cannot have been his ambition. The man who is ambitious for the gospel to go out all over the world and who knows he is a key player in that happening is calm, collected, even joyful. What a different man from the one we met at the start. Paul's ambition to know Christ and for others to know Christ, it's happening even though he's in prison. It's happening through his weakness and his failure, if you like. Not through his planning and strength. Different man. Maybe the important thing isn't what Christ is doing through you. Maybe it's what he's doing in you, in the midst of weakness and failure, to help you get to know him better or to help others know him better as they see you. See, I think Paul's godly ambition radically redefines success and failure, perceptions of success and failure.
because he can trust Jesus to work in him through all circumstances, good or bad, when he is weak or strong, and because of that he can rejoice. Godly ambition sparks joy. As oh, She's good, isn't she? <laughs> Marie Kondo, should meet her. Godly ambition sparks joy as it provides freedom from comparisons, favourable or unfavourable, freedom from being assessed by status, ethnicity, intellect, health, niceness, suburb, home, family, life, job, money, ministry, fruitfulness, living up to your parents' or your kids' expectations, freedom from being assessed by these things, freedom from assessing others by these things, freedom from assessing yourself by these things. Because what really matters is knowing Christ. Godly ambition sparks joy. Sisters, rejoice in the Lord.